Hello, good evening and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, we hear about one of the most renowned Irish sea captains. And we are on the Aran Islands to learn about traditional music there and its links to the sea. Last night, I was at the opening of an exhibition dedicated to one of Ireland's most famous sea captains. Wickleman Robert Halpin was the captain of the world's largest ship when it laid the first transatlantic cable in 1866. The exhibition is at the National Maritime Museum in Dunleary, and Joe Vardy, president of the Maritime Institute of Ireland, told me about Captain Robert Halpin. Captain Halpin was born in Wicklow in 1836. Rather unusual from our way of thinking, he went to sea at the age of 11 as an apprentice, which really meant he, that was what they called an officer cadet at the time. He went on sailing ships initially on the uh, Canadian timber trade. He was out of his time, having served his time at the age of 18, got his master's ticket and sailed on sailing ships um, as uh, a third mate uh, for about another five or six years later. However, at this stage, we're really coming into the 1850s and he saw the future was in steam. And from then on, he sailed in um, steamers, but they weren't quite uh, uh, totally steamers because the technology was poor at the time and there were a combination of sailing ships and uh, there were a combination of sail and uh, uh, coal power. Uh, inevitably, what he's best known for is laying the transatlantic cables, which is the focus of our exhibition, and this would have been done on the Great Eastern. It's in front of us here. You have a, a very large model of it. It was an enormous ship for its time. It was the biggest ship in the world at its time, and it would have been the brainchild of Brun- Brunel, the younger okay. Brunel. Okay. okay, very famous British engineer who built huge infrastructure throughout the Victorian era. Yes, his idea would have been he was the big railway man and his uh, big job is the Great Western Railway. Now, he wanted to extend the Great Western Railway over to America and that's why he built the big steamship, steamships. His first one was the, uh, the Great Western, then he had the Great, uh, the Great Britain, which is a museum ship in Bristol now, and we're lucky enough to have this model of the Great Eastern. Captain Robert Halpern, he was the captain of this ship? at a very particular time in its life. It, it was first a passenger ship, but then he laid the first cable across the Atlantic. Uh, yes, that is correct. It was a, a disaster as a passenger ship. She was built like a warship. She was most uncomfortable and she never got. She was never commercially viable. She was absolutely brilliant as a cable ship because a lot of the fancy um, decorations, the fancy uh, furnishings downstairs were ripped out and they used it as a big store to lay cable and over a system of uh, trains, small little trains which I'm looking at, at the, as I'm talking on it They've got railway lines across the deck of the ship. That was it and inevitably kind of what happened, the cable was fed up from the holes, went along these lines and went over the aft end of the um, vessel. Now they laid cable in the, the, the first commercial, the first uh, uh, complete cable was laid in July of 1866. Um, he went from Valencia to a place in Newfoundland, but remarkably they had as approximately 1,900 miles. Amazing, absolutely amazing. But the interesting thing was they had a go at laying the cable uh, uh, 
also in the previous year, 1865. They lost it about two-thirds of the way across. Halpin went back and he actually found it. He found it where he had left. And I suppose any mariners know the, the, the ocean is featureless. So basically the fact to get back to where he uh, had lost the cable showed incredible powers of navigation. In your exhibition here, you have one of his uniforms, a very ornate outfit. What happened at the end of his career, he was the flavour of the month and he was part of the Royal Naval Reserve. An outfit that's still going. It's basically merchant navy people who do some training with the Royal Navy and are called up in times of war. They call them the wavy navy, they used to call them. And what we have here is his full dress uniform and we've had this for a considerable while but inevitably uh, it was, had gone a bit scruffy and there was a total uh, re- restoration, reconstruction job done on it and uh, that is uh, a keynote of our exhibition at this time. The museum here, it's, it's ter- really terrific. How often are you open? Is it free for people to come in? You're just up from, you're in the middle of Dunleary. Uh, it's superb. It's open five days a week. Unfortunately, it's not free, except we do specials now and again. But however, it won't break the bank. It's five. It's six euro in, five euro for uh, students and pensioners and that, and a family great at uh, 12 euro, two adults and two young children. We'll come again and talk about more of your exhibits. We appreciate that, Fergal, yeah. Jim Reese, your husband's biographer. I am, and it was such a pleasure. In fact, I've just been speaking to two people here at the gathering, and they were asking me about different aspects of his life that didn't come out in the speeches, naturally enough. I remember back when I was writing it and researching it, I, several times I thought to myself, this cannot be right. I'm not going to bring out this book because people aren't going to believe it. This is too much in a relatively short life. I kept finding the information, I kept finding the proof, and this guy's life was fantastic. In quick summary, he went to sea when he was 12, he was shipwrecked at 14? Actually, he was, went to sea at 11 years, 1 month and 11 days, and he, uh, yeah, he was shipwrecked first at 14 uh, off Cornwall, he was shipwrecked a second time by the time he was 22, unfortunately, the second time was when he was skipper. And he, he was held responsible. He hit a rock. Actually, I was coming back from. He was working for the Galway Line, uh, which had discovered that the shortest way, don't think eighteen sixty or eighteen fifties, mass immigration from Ireland after the famine, and so somebody caught on to the. It's a fairly obvious idea that the shortest distance between Ireland and the North American continent is Galway to Newfoundland. So to set up this Galway line that was to go two-leg journey. So it went to St. John's, fine. St. John's, New York, fine. Unfortunately, New York, back to St. John's on the return trip. St. John's is the real place for the typical Newfoundland fog and the Grand Banks fog. So it was in the middle of this and the crazy, the ridiculous situation or belief at the time, even among all the main lines, where when you hit fog, go as fast as possible, your own speed will disperse the fog. Yeah, but it didn't quite work. He went up on rocks there just off southeast Newfoundland. After his career at sea, he went into politics. He built Tinnakilly House. He did, well, the, building a Tinnakilly House... I've never found any proof one way or the other of this, but they said it was a, bra- a grateful British government uh, after he had linked 
Canada and then also linked to Australia and all this telecommunications then within the so-called British Empire. So as a great, apart from his wages, the grateful British government built Tenekili House for him. They underwrote whatever it was going to be. And so that was it, but he, he had that, but he went in, he kind of took on the mantle of uh, Lord of the Manor. Now, now, we didn't go up the sea completely. It's, it's impossible to put a, de- a date on. When did he stop going to sea? He was a unionist politician. He was a unionist politician. I'm very fond of the man. I admire him greatly. Whether me and him could sit down and have a pint is another thing. Uh, so, But the only thing about him is, give him his due, that he hated what Parnell was trying to do, but he did not hate Parnell. He believed Parnell was coming from uh, a different angle on it, but he understood that Parnell's best wishes were for development of the county, and so was Halpin's. What's your book called? Where can we buy it? Well, it's The Life of Captain Robert Halpin, and uh, believe it or not, now I begin to feel like I've just published it, but it first came out in 1992, so 30 years old, and it's never been... Nobody's ever tried to supersede it, so I think I must have got something right. And uh, really, if you can get in touch with uh, the museum here or with, with me, Jay Reese, J-R-E-E-S 7778 at gmail.com. And if you've never been to the National Maritime Museum, it's well worth a visit. It's right in the heart of Dunleary, next to the Dunleary Library, and the website is mariner.ie. Most works of literature based at sea have their basis in true stories or on the life experiences of their authors. Herman Melville was just one, and another is Joseph Conrad, one of the greatest literary novelists of the English language. Norman Freeman has a story of one of his novels, Lord Jim. On passenger ships it is taken for granted that the captain, officers and crew will always put their own lives into second place when something goes seriously wrong. If the ship is sinking or enveloped by flames, the safety of the passengers becomes paramount. There's a tradition that the captain will be the last to leave the doomed vessel, having done all he could to save the lives of the passengers. These themes of courage and duty at sea are woven into some of the novels of Joseph Conrad, the Polish writer who settled in England and wrote in English. He spent some 20 years at sea between 1873 and 1894. He sailed in the French and the British merchant navies and attained a master's certificate. He experienced all the dangers and hardships of seafaring. Conrad developed sharp insights into the human condition. He knew that mariners, like everyone else, were fallible human beings. At times of crisis, they didn't always measure up to the ideals. They weren't always brave. They didn't always do their duty. In one of his novels, Lord Jim, published in 1900, Conrad tells the story of how a man was haunted by an incident of human weakness in his seafaring career. Jim was mate on a ship called the Patna, carrying Muslim pilgrims to the holy city of Mecca. However, when the vessel struck a reef, Jim, the captain and the white officers jumped into a lifeboat, abandoning the distraught passengers to their fate. Jim and his accomplices were rescued by another ship. However, the Patna did not sink and was towed into port by another ship. In the official inquiry that followed, Jim and the others 
were denounced for dereliction of duty. His master certificate was taken from him. For the rest of his life, this basically decent man was deeply haunted by this incident of weakness. The story of Lord Jim is said to be based on a real event. A British ship called the Jeddah, carrying about 1,000 pilgrims, got into difficulties in the Red Sea in the year 1800. The hull sprung a leak and the water began to rise rapidly. The British captain and officers abandoned both ship and its Asian passengers and jumped into a lifeboat. They were rescued by another ship and taken to the port of Aden. There they told the port authorities a story of passengers becoming dangerously violent in the most appalling panic. They said they had no option but to scramble to safety. Then to their astonishment and perhaps dismay, a French ship towed the Jeddah into the port. All the pilgrims had survived. An official inquiry followed, as it does in Conrad's novel, where the captain and officers were roundly condemned, their seafaring careers scuttled. I first came across this book in the library of a ship I was serving on. I was fascinated by this nautical tale of human frailty. I was reading it when on watch in the radio room when the captain appeared. He took it up. Yeah, I've read that book, he said. We all hope that if we go on the rocks or the ship takes fire or whatever, that we'll hold our nerve, that we won't panic. It doesn't always happen. Norman Freeman Now, there have been many books and photographs about what the Aran Islands look like, but its social history is not as well documented. Deirdre Nikonala, from a well-known Aran fishing family, is an ethnomusicologist and curator, and she's just published a fascinating study of Irish traditional music collecting on the islands. Lorna Siggins met Deirdre to hear more about the project and about the link between music and the sea. My name is Deirdre Nichanela and I am from the Aran Islands. I'm from Oran, or Inishmore as some people call it. And uh, I'm a musician and a sometime broadcaster and a curator at the moment as well. So um, lots of different projects on the go. And I launched a book recently called Collecting Music in the Aran Islands, A Century of History and Practice. And it's published by the University of Wisconsin Press. They're known for books on Irish history and folklore. Actually, there's a strong folklore department there. So Deirdre, the book has a beautiful cover by a number of artists, including Orange Sean of Flaherty. And tell us what the book is about. The book looks at different collections of music, traditional music in Aran from the 19th century through to the 20th century. So everything from manuscript through to uh, sound recording uh, technology. So if you want to know what was going on in the past, musically speaking, you're relying on uh, sources and archives of music. And I was interested in the practice of collecting that produced those documents. So it's a historiography in a sense. If we want to know and trust the histories that we're reading, we want to know the motives and methodologies and uh, practices of the people that are producing it. And in this case, I was looking at materials that were in archives off the island, but I was also looking at materials available on the island. So whether those were manuscripts that people held in their families or in a school or photographs 
or even sound recordings as well. So the book ended up featuring four different collections. The first comes from George Petrie and Ono Corey, who were antiquarian visitors uh, around the time that Dunangasa would have been emerging as a sort of famous, uh, well now tourist destination at this stage, a very famous Bronze Age uh, stone fort. Um, then it sort of leaps forward into the 20th century because there were other collections I might have looked at Um, in between but they weren't as accessible so I I wrote about what I could actually sink my teeth into in a sense. And Seamus Ennis was lucky to have fine weather when he went into Oran in August 1945. So the second chapter is about Seamus Ennis. People would know him from as an Ilham Piper and broadcaster and uh, a very major figure in the history of traditional music in Ireland in the 20th century. So it was his job. He was collecting for the National Folklore Collection as we call it now then the Irish Folklore Commission and uh, he came out in 1945 and he was collecting uh, songs and, and music in, in the island, uh, mainly songs. And then there's two ladies then for the next two chapters. One is an, an American and the other is an islander. So the American lady is uh, Sydney Robertson Cowell. And she would compare maybe with Alan Lomax. People would be uh, more familiar maybe with Alan Lomax. Uh, but she was older than him and uh, she'd actually helped him out um, when he was starting out himself. So Sydney was born in 1903 and died in 1995 and she was collecting for 20 years uh, collecting music all over uh, the states and uh, then uh, she managed in the 1950s to go on a on visits abroad and uh, one of those was to Aaron uh, through her husband Henry Cowell because he had met Aaron Islanders in uh, the 1930s in America in New York as happens they'd been over for uh, the film Man of Aaron and uh, uh, so Sydney and Henry visited Aaron and Sydney decided she was going to stay on for a bit longer than they'd originally planned and uh, she ended up recording people in uh, both Aaron and in Ishmael and then Corner because she came back a second year with her own equipment uh, to do all of that and of course she would have interacted with um, various collectors and uh, people in the world of broadcasting at the time because by now their tape machines are starting to come on the scene like Seamus Ennis was using pen and, pencil and paper and pen and paper when he was on the island he could have used an edophone recorder but it's probably a bit awkward to be bringing that around with him on boats and bicycles and all travelling during the, the emergency as they call it but Sydney had uh, tape machines and then uh, she liaised with the likes of Ennis and others to um, you know learn more as she was going because she wasn't an Irish speaker herself she was good at languages and she learned a bit as she was uh, spending more time in Ireland she understood the value of of trying to learn the language if she's going to be collecting songs uh, in that language. And there's a family connection because your aunt Barbara Quinn also has a fascinating role in all this. She was the first islander to have a tape recorder and there are probably attics all over the country with old tapes in them along with manuscripts and photographs and and God only knows what else and uh, this was the case here where I had started researching music and song in the islands and my dad and his sister had said oh Barbara used to have tapes you should ask Paddy about them because Barbara had had died when I was uh, very young but her late husband uh, Paddy uh, had kept the tapes the family had, had looked after them all those years so I had the pleasure of sort of resurrecting them in a sense and in partnership with Martin James Yoflaherte from Aaron, a veteran broadcaster uh, with uh, RT Radio and the Gaeltachte we put 
together a radio series that we broadcast on Ornigy in 2006 and seven, and that was rebroadcast then uh, in the summer of 2021, 15 years later, because there was a whole generation of, of young islanders that uh, hadn't heard the series the first time round, uh, including Barbara's own grandchildren. It was an extraordinary privilege to go through those recordings and be the first to listen to them for many decades, really, and uh, help to reveal all the work that she had done. So she would go to sessions that were happening around, whether 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 it was in the local pub or a house party. Uh, a time was the name that people had for um, house parties then in Arran. But also she would go deliberately maybe to the local poets if they had composed songs about something that was happening she'd go and sort of get those so she had a sense of fun and play when she was just recording people at a party for the crack and but also a sense of history and the value of capturing the poet's own words in that moment in time sort of hot off the presses their their latest composition and uh, had two poets for instance are just nearly not quite sparring but showing off their latest compositions to each other so a remarkable breadth of material there and it's an interesting collection because it differs from the ones that are coming from what we might call professional collectors or archives because they're focusing very much on maybe traditional music and they want what's local and maybe what's older etc but Barbara was looking at it from the way the islanders will look at music Music in general, so you could have had maybe a show band song alongside maybe a, a cowboy song in the 1960s, or uh, a pop song alongside a Shano song. So it's a, maybe a more accurate reflection of what the music practice actually was. Another element of the project was to create a catalogue of all of the recordings that Sydney Robertson Cowell had made in Ireland that hadn't been available previously. Her materials were scattered across four or five different archives, and there would be duplicates as well. And where that comes into play is maybe for rights requests and people say well I want to use this recording but you have to go back to the original if you want the right to use it for um, including it on a publication or on a radio broadcast or something like that so it was to make life easier for people in identifying whose recording is this, where the artefacts are and give them the information because if the material was in Irish and the archives are over in America they didn't necessarily have the expertise in-house to clearly identify all of these materials. In the future, I mean, that catalogue is now um, published on the Irish Traditional Music Archives website and available for anybody to view. Just go to itma.ie and look for Sydney Robertson Cowell. And uh, there's also a bit more of the story there and some photographs um, explaining... um, Sydney's time uh, in Ireland. This first book, uh, Collecting Music in the Iron Islands, is, has sort of laid a foundation now for future projects. And the next one that I've planned is Oran Oran Aran Songs. And the idea is to publish a collection of all of the songs composed in the Iron Islands. And it's as much a social history, really. For instance, your aunt, she was recording at a time of change when there was a falling population on the islands and television was coming in and songs were being written about the dole and all that sort of thing. And so and did the sea come into much of the songwriting? Yeah, the sea is a constant theme. It's everywhere in the songs. Uh, I remember c- coming across this two different songs that mention uh, Orca. 
actually. <laughs> Gromper was the word used, Askoelge. Uh, so it was fascinating to see the extent to which the sea uh, just imbued every element of life there. So um, either, you know, talking about the place being an island or people coming and going uh, or um, songs about fishing. There's a song about ringer nets and uh, acknowledging the impact they could foresee there where they would have been favouring longlining and saying, well, if you're going to use nets now, you know, that, that impacts the fish stocks and all of that. So, yeah, you're right. It's, it is a social history through song. And uh, song in particular, it was a place where poets were expected to give opinions and strong opinions and air grievances or to let loose in a sense. And uh, I'm really looking forward to sharing those, not just with um, Islanders, but actually with everybody else. We've so many visitors coming as well. And these alternative histories, alternative stories, and they're, they're not alternative in a sense, they're alternative to what, what you'll get in a book um, on a library shelf, maybe, but they're central to the Islanders themselves. And that was Deirdre Michulna speaking to Lorna Siggins on the Aral Islands about her book entitled Collecting Music on the Aral Islands, published by the University of Wisconsin Press. And those two songs you heard were from the collection called Songs of Aran by Sidney Robertson Cowell and there was a song by Margaret and Sean Duran. <laughs> And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme is podcast. It's on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe.